Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. You competed in the wrestling events for the first four days. The fifth day, you're sitting in the Olympic Village, and then what do you hear? Oh, bang, 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 and and I thought, so I was in Vietnam the year before, so I knew what an AK-47 sounded like. And I thought, oh, not here, because this is the Olympics. The special Forgotten Australia series, Sydney's Red Year, will conclude after the weekend. In the meantime, though, to commemorate Anzac Day, I'm presenting to you a conversation I had on Friday the 24th of April with John Kinsella. John Kinsella is an Aboriginal man, a dual Olympian, a Vietnam veteran, and a survivor of PTSD and, most recently, cancer. He's a fascinating individual. Just a note, due to social distancing, we couldn't do this interview face-to-face, so we had to do it over the phone. There are a few technical issues, but I think John's story really shines through. I hope you enjoy the conversation and find it as illuminating as I did. Lest we forget. John Kinsella, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Let's start at the beginning. Who were your mum and dad? My mum, her, her father was uh, uh, second generation English and the mother was from the Jarwin tribe up in the Northern Territory, uh, what you call uh, uh, lost generation. And she was brought up by white people in South Australia. Tell me about your dad. Uh, well, dad, uh, he was born in Condoblin. Uh, which is Wiradjuri country, and uh, mum's uh, Jarwin, so uh, uh, we've got a mixture of Jarwin and uh, Wiradjuri, yeah. And whereabouts did you grow up? Uh, well, I was born in Surrey Hills in 1949. The earliest memories of me w- was in um, Newtown, 
Now, we lived there in the 50s and then we moved to Nowra. It was a little bit of an adventure for us because at the time there was nine of us. When we moved down there, we lived in a little wooden house. We didn't have any electricity uh, or water tap taps. And uh, mum used to do all the washing down the creek. (laughs) And we used to have a a wood burner stove. So it was pretty tough. Uh, It was. Back in them days, they, they were just wooden rafters and uh, with tin roofs. Uh, now, you were the oldest of, of nine kids, is that right? Yes, I was. Uh, uh, when we lived down there, there was nine of us, uh, so I, I was the eldest of the nine. One of the reasons we moved out there, we had uh, my dad's uh, auntie lived down there. It was just one happy big family, you know, I mean... We all shared everything. Um, To get food, we used to go fishing and sometimes we used to go kangaroo hunting. We hunted pigs and uh, we kind of lived a little bit of the rough life, you know, because back in them days, there wasn't a lot of uh, money to be made. So we used to just live the best we could, you know. And Dad sometimes wasn't in work and uh, that's the way it was back in the 50s. So it was a pretty happy existence, if, if kind of tough by today's standards. But then things took a bit of a dark turn. Your sister had a bad accident. Yeah, well, we had a, an open fire and one of the younger sisters, uh, she had a nylon nighty on and uh, caught fire and uh, she ended up with third-degree burns and she had to be rushed to Nara. Now, back in them days, there weren't any freeways. It took about four hours to go from Nara to Sydney in, in the ambulance. She was put into uh, the children's hospital at Camperdown and she was there for quite a few years, and she was getting skinny rafts. So we eventually had to move up to Sydney. And the only place we had to stay was uh, uh, my mother's uh, sister's house. And uh, there was uh, seven of them, and there was um, 11 of us. So that's 18 people in a house. It was like a three-bedroom housing commission. You know, that's how we survived back in them days. (laughs) Uh, My auntie lived at Greenacre, and we, uh, we even went to and everything there. Uh, so you you had bad luck with your sister's accident and then more bad luck when your your dad lost his job. Tell us about that. Back in them days, like he wasn't a tradesman or anything. He, he mainly worked in a sock factory. Uh, he used to do uh, press the socks and things. Uh, and when he lost his job, uh, mum ended up having to go to the Salvation Army's uh, community centres out at uh, La Perouse. And she actually took the younger girls. And there was me and my brother. We went to a boy's home. And the older sisters, they actually ended up in a girl's home. And they were in Mittagong and we were in Barrel. What was it like in the boy's home in Barrel? Well, it was a little bit brutal because uh, the governor, you know, if you stepped out of line, he'd uh, give you a bit of a bashing. You know, uh, many uh, young boys... uh, used to get a kick or a, or a smack. Yeah. It wasn't a very good life. And I actually was pretty good at school, but when Dad got a job and we eventually got a place in Redfern, I went to Cleveland Street High School and uh, I was only in sixth class then, uh, just before high school, and, and the work was totally different. And I kind of dropped the grades so that by the time I did a, uh, the test to go into high school, uh, I ended up going to a secondary high school in Burke Street down in Redfern. Uh, that's where I lacked in my uh, future education. And 
with my children in the uh, family. I had to leave school when I was 14 to help help mum and dad uh, support the kids. So what sort of work did you do? Uh, well, my first job ever was with a place called Fleming's, which is something like Bullworth. I actually got a job as a store person and I got a certificate from the, the, the boss at Fleming's uh, for my... Uh, for being a good worker. And when we moved to Redfern, um, that's when Dad got me into the Boy Scouts. You excelled at the Boy Scouts, didn't you, and the Duke of Edinburgh Award? In 1968, I, I received the Queen Scout Award and then I got the um, Duke of Edinburgh Gold Award at the same time. And the Duke of Edinburgh Award I actually received off the Duke himself at uh, Narrabeen Fitness Camp. That's great. Now tell me about living in Redfern in those early days, in the sort of late 50s, early 60s. What was it like there? What was the community like? In around Redfern, you know, my involvement was with the uh, the Boy Scouts and um, and because I left school at 14, um, I wanted to do uh, physical sport and um, that's how I, I used to go to the South Sydney Police Boys Club and I found out one of my uncles knew one of the boxing coaches at Leichhardt and he actually introduced me to him and I, after two weeks the boxing coach didn't show up and so I went upstairs looking around and then I saw the wrestling and uh, I said to the wrestling coach, I said, oh, how do I get into wrestling? He said, oh, we've got a competition on next Tuesday, just bring a pair of shorts we come along and we'll put you into a competition. I went into the competition and uh, actually got the state champion. You were up against the state champion straight off. Yeah, I had about four wrestles and uh, I ended up, I come second. But that state champion, that was the only time he ever beat me. In the early 60s, sorry, in the mid-60s when you were first uh, introduced to wrestling, what sort of exposure had you had to wrestling up to that point? They used to have professional wrestling on the TV and I actually went to the old stadium down in Rushcutters Bay. I went down there a few times to watch the professional wrestling. Who were your wrestling heroes? Well, there was Mark Lewin and uh, Killer Kowalski <laughs> and all those. So how good were you at wrestling straight off and what did you really love about it? Uh, it was a combat sport. And you were, when you get on the mat, there was only you and your opponent. So it was usually the, the most technical and the strongest wrestler that won. I actually excelled in fitness. Um, I used to train really hard. And I was fortunate that I was actually training with, with past Olympians. So that's what brought my uh, my ability up. So, so when we had the trials, I won all my matches by fall. I had five wrestles and I pinned everybody within the first or second round. So... And that's one of the reasons I got selected. So this is 1968, February, March, and you're just winning every single time, pinning every opponent. When you were selected for Mexico City Olympics, that was Anzac Day 1968 that it was announced in the newspapers. How did you feel? Uh, it, was just a, it was just amazing, you know, to actually get picked. Uh, now, was this, and, your uh, was this your first time outside of Australia? Uh, it was, yes. How's a first time on a plane? On a plane, yeah. How was it? How exciting was it? Uh, it was just fantastic. And uh, because of the uh, the high altitude, we had to do acclimatisation. So we actually spent... Uh, we were actually one of the first teams into the uh, 
Mexico Olympics and we spent quite a few weeks there. In the village they had like apartments and the rest of us, we, we had our own apartment. And because I used to grind my teeth, they ended up putting my bed out in the hallway. <laughs> I was the youngest wrestler to actually represent Australia at that time. You were also one of Australia's first Aboriginal athletes at the Olympics. How did that feel? Were you conscious of representing Aboriginal Australia? With the Olympics, uh, it's one of those events where everybody's equal, if you know what I mean. Uh, Doesn't matter what colour you are. After the Olympics, you know, because people know that you're Aboriginal, they they always bring up where you're discriminated against. A lot of people at the time, I used to have a moustache and people thought I was a Mexican. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, what was Mexico City like when you got there? Was it a culture shock for you? It was because um, at that time there was uh, a lot of political things going on and I actually drove past one of the buildings where there were bullet holes in one of the universities there. And that kind of scared you a little bit, but uh, uh, virtually uh, two years later, I was in Vietnam looking at the same bullet holes. Did you feel like a bit of a superstar? I read somewhere that you were being asked for autographs. There was actually a village just uh, across the uh, from the Olympic Village, and um, it was like an Aboriginal uh, settlement down in the, in the country, you know? The people used to come down to the main gate. You had to learn a little bit of Spanish and... Uh, the first thing I had to learn was uh, Lucha Libre, which is freestyle wrestling, because they used to ask what sport I did. And, uh, and they were the two words, Lucha Libre, <laughs> uh, freestyle wrestling. I can understand why you would have been a superstar there. The Mexican people do love their wrestling. Now, you went up against some pretty tough competition in that uh, Olympics. How proud were you of how you competed against the Italian wrestler who was European champion. Yeah, it was a bit daunting because I didn't find out that uh, Italian, how good a wrestler he was until I got back to Australia. And then I found out he was European champion. So he was the best wrestler in all of Europe. So I actually got the best of the, uh, the European first up. You were there at the Olympics when Peter Norman took the dais beside Tommy Smith and John Carlos and gave the Black Power salute. How much of that did you understand at the time in terms of what it meant and the controversy surrounding it? Well, we only seen most of that content on TV and it, and it was, wasn't kind of blowing up until you, you got back home because you've got to remember, it, I was only uh, 19 and, and a lot of the politics... Uh, you know, it wasn't until years later that the uh, uh, all of that kind of... Because I actually met Peter Norman uh, a couple of times and he was a gentleman and, and what they did to him for the Munich Olympics uh, was a shame. So coming home after the Olympics, 1969, was a tough year for you? I actually got beaten for the Spain wrestling championships and I got called up for national service. So That's quite so, a year. That's uh, quite a year. 69 <laughs> wasn't a good year for me. So uh, Your Uncle Reg was the first Aboriginal man to be a commissioned army officer. How much of a hero to you was he growing up? I knew him when I was younger, but um, 
because when he came back from Korea, he ended up uh, going a different path. He uh, ended up, uh, he, he was married to my auntie and uh, they divorced and I didn't have very much to do with him at all. You've got to remember, back in them days, I was an athlete. And when I got called up for national service, uh, that was a different thing altogether. So you didn't object terribly to being drafted at that point? Well, it was just one of those things, you know. Um, so what was, <laughs> what, 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 what was training like at Kapuka? I loved it. Uh, and then uh, during that uh, period of time, uh, you selected uh, where you wanted to go or what sort of job you wanted to do. And, and everybody said, oh, you went to the Olympics, you should be a PDI, which is a physical training instructor. And then I found out that uh, I was at the School of Artillery. And that's one of the reasons I ended up in the School of Artillery. Uh, is, um, I put my hand up to be a PDI. And then after uh, recruit training, I ended up in... One, two, three training back in, which is at Holsworthy, and that's the school of artillery. But most of the Nashos went through uh, Holsworthy. And at that time, I put down uh, physical training instructor, and there was no courses run at that time, and then they asked for volunteers to go to Vietnam, and uh, 90% of the class put their hand up, so I put my hand up, and uh, within, uh, within three weeks, uh, I was up in Canangra training to go to uh, Vietnam. When I got to Canangra, a lot of the soldiers found out that uh, oh, there was an athlete, uh, oh, there was a soldier that went to the Olympics. And then when they found out it was me, they used to ask me what I did, and I said I was a wrestler. And at that time, a lot of the soldiers only knew about the professional wrestlers. And that's where I got the nickname Killer. <laughs> <laughs> like Killer Kowalski. Killer Kowalski. And, and then we'd be out marching and then all of a sudden somebody say, hey, Killer. And, and uh, the word spread. And even when I was in Vietnam, they used to call me uh, Killer. And um, Did you like the nickname Killer? Oh, well, it was, you know, it was, uh, yeah, mine was very unique, if you know what I mean. So tell me about leaving Australia and going to Vietnam. We spent a night at uh, South Head, uh, the naval depot there, and then uh, they took us by bus out to Mascot. When we got to Tonsonut Airport, uh, then they had to fly us to Nui Dat, and I had a, a vehicle pick me up, and I spent a night in, uh, in Nui Dat, and we had a... There was a battery sergeant major... And he's one of them sticklers for uh, typical artillery. He had to have spit-polished boots and virtually had to have iron greens and everything. And when I went out to uh, the horseshoe the next day, uh, I had a truck uh, take me out there. And um, on the way out to the horseshoe, uh, we went past this compound. It was an Arvin, which is the South Vietnamese Army. Uh, base, and there was all these plastic bags, uh, black plastic bags, and they were bodies that had contact of some sort. And then in 1968, they had what they called the Tet Offensive, 
And when you went through Dat Dab, which is one of the little uh, villages not far from New Dat, uh, there was bullet holes in all the, uh, some of the buildings. Some of the buildings were blown up and uh, kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, when I was in Mexico City. Wow. Now tell but, us, uh, tell, tell us what is the, what was the horseshoe in terms of geography and in terms of its uh, importance militarily? Well, the horseshoe was, um, it was a, like a, a volcanic crater. And because it was the shape of a horseshoe, uh, they had the guns down the front of the, the, the actual, uh, imagine a horseshoe. Well, the open part of the shoe, uh, the guns pointed to the, uh, to the, uh, the mountains, um, the long highs. The VC, they had all their tunnel systems there and, the eight months that I was there, they used to bomb the long highs with B-52 bombs. Uh, we used to uh, use artillery and um, we used to send artillery bombs over there. And uh, So it was a pretty strategic place. So, uh, so with the artillery piece, uh, you had a range of up to seven to nine uh, K. And so when the uh, infantry patrols went out, uh, they have, uh, in the patrols, they have forward observers, which were artillery guys, and they were surveyors, and they're the guys that used to call in the artillery. So if you heard a long pan where they actually call artillery in on themselves, yeah. uh, that was all done by uh, forward observers that were all qualified surveyors. And... Uh, so when they used to go out in the bush, they used to do the uh, the infantry used to get the surveyors to do all the map reading because they knew how to read a map. There's a lot of illumination around. Yeah. Now whenever there was a contact uh, during the night time, uh, the infantry used to call in for illumination. Now what illumination used to do was after there was a big contact, uh, they used to go through the area to see. Uh, who was killed and um, uh, that sort of thing. So uh, there was one night there when we tra- we fired over 250 rounds and they were all, uh, a lot of that was uh, illumination. This is lighting up the night sky so infantry can see what's uh, happening on the ground around them. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. Just, and, just, uh, uh, just winding back just a second, when you uh, saw those piles of body bags, how did it make you feel? Can you remember at the time? You've got to kind of be a little bit hardened. Because uh, I, I didn't tell you, but when I was in Mexico, I went to a bullfight. And there was actually a couple of... Uh, uh, the matadors actually got killed by the bulls. And, uh, so I kind of hardened myself up to somebody being killed. And, um, and when you see a body bag... Uh, but you don't actually see the bodies, it was just the bags. Uh, you know, I, I guess you, it's an afterthought that, well, you know, that uh, it could be me. You know, I, I actually did lose a mate over there. Uh, we, went, we went for a canoe and um, he was a APC driver and um, uh, there was a helicopter come in to, uh, for their roof supply and, and his uh, APC was too close, and uh, 
and he's popped his head out of the car, uh, out of the, he was one of the drivers, and, and the, his APC was too close to the chopper, and the, uh, and the blade clipped, uh, clipped him on the head, and uh, yeah, he, he, he died. Yeah, well, actually, it was the brother of one of the guys on my unit, uh, he was on my gun, had to escort the body back home to Australia. 24, uh, 24/7. So you were in Vietnam for eight months and then came back to Australia. I had the opportunity to do the full 12 months. So the unit was over there four months before I before I got there. And when the unit was coming home, I decided to come over the unit because uh, the Olympics were on in '72, and I hadn't done any training at all. Uh, the only training I did was they used to let me run around the horseshoe sometimes, you know. And we used to do uh, exercises uh, at the gun position. So when I got back to uh, Sydney, I, I ended up, uh, the unit was stationed up in Townsville. So I had a couple of, uh, about a week or so leave. And then uh, I, I spent two days in the train getting up to Townsville. And when I get up to Townsville, they said, uh, John, pack your bags, you're off down to Manly. I said, why, what happened? They said, um, oh, we'd put you on the physical training instructor school. I packed my bags and I was off down to Manly. And how did you go in the physical training instructor course? It was a bit of an eye-opener for me because the physical training instructor uh, you know, I thought it was just fitness. It was actually 
equivalent to a phys ed teacher at high school. And I haven't left school at 14. Uh, I didn't actually get enough points to pass the final test. Uh, I got about 65 and you had to get 70. And when I got back to town, so I got a bit of a roasting from the uh, <laughs> from the, the, the CEO and he, uh, because he said, oh, you know, you went to the Olympics and all this. And uh, not long after I got back up there, I got tonsillitis and I ended up in Townsville Hospital. And at that time, uh, tonsillitis was uh, not a good operation to have because a lot of people uh, died. And I guess it's the toughness of uh, me doing the physical training at this course that uh, I got through the operation. But uh, I hemorrhaged. Uh, after the operation, I hemorrhaged. And all I could remember was they were giving me bread to soak up the blood. And it wasn't a very good feeling at all. It's 1971. You, you've had the tonsillitis operation. You hoping to get to Munich, but you haven't had much in the way of training. Then you get appendicitis, is that right? So I got out of the army in September, and then I got uh, had an appendectomy. And then when I started training, which is not long after that, I dislocated my left, uh, my right elbow. And uh, so that, that on top of uh, consolitis, appendectomy and a dislocated elbow, uh, we had the trials down in Melbourne in February and I won. And all of this is because of the fitness that I got from the physical training instructor's course. So but, even, though, uh, even though you didn't pass that physical training instructor's course, it actually gave you a benefit. It made you able to qualify for the Olympics. Yeah. See, I was one of the fittest people on the course, but uh, it's just that I haven't left school at 14. You know, you have to know the rules of football, soccer, Aussie rules, and haven't left school at 14. You know, I didn't play rugby league or soccer or anything. I, uh, I imagine there was a lot of theory involved in the PT courses. Yeah, well, there was. And and some of the guys that passed, they were school teachers. <laughs> and and uh, they, some of them were university students. So... Yeah. You know, I, I didn't have a hope in the world. And, and that I must say that you have disappointments in life, and that was my disappointment. But I made up for it later down the track. Tell me about the Munich Olympics. You wrestled better in Munich in 1972 than in 1968, but you again faced incredibly tough competition. How close did you come to meddling? Well, I actually come seventh, because uh, I actually had a good draw. Uh, I wrestled this um, South American and, and I beat him. The, there is that wonderful newspaper clipping you sent me, which is, you know, de- the headline, the front page headline, declaring that you are the, the only Australian winner on the first day of the 1972 Olympics. M- must make you proud looking at that. Uh, it does. And um, so in round two, I got a bye, which is like winning a, a competition. Uh, and then I got the Italian. And the Italian only beat you by two points, right? And if I would have beaten the Italian, I might have come third or fourth at the most in the Olympics. Uh, and then I got a Romanian who was... The Romanian ended up coming fourth. 
you competed in the wrestling events for the first four days. The fifth day, you're sitting in the Olympic Village, and then what do you hear? Oh, bang, 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 and and I thought, so I was in Vietnam the year before, so I knew what an AK-47 sounded like, and I thought, oh, not here, because this is the Olympics, and uh, I thought it was probably just firecrackers, and uh, and the next day, the uh, the manager gets us all together, and he says, uh, oh, there's uh, been a hostage uh, situation, and he was actually good friends with the... Uh, the wrestling manager for the Israeli Olympic team. And half the people, there was 11 people killed and half of them were uh, wrestlers. It must have been devastating for you. Yeah, it was, and uh, I kind of give up wrestling after the Munich Olympics and uh, then come back out of retirement in 74. You gave up wrestling because of that massacre? Up until then, I had a pretty hectic life, and um, and, I, and I was married, and I had a young child. You know, I just had a rest for two years, and then in '74 I come back, and um, I ended up going to Istanbul in '74 for the World Wrestling Championships. I actually got beaten to go to the Commonwealth Games, but I, I only just started back wrestling, and uh, so my fitness wasn't a hundred percent. Just, but, uh, just take I actually just... won selection to go to Montreal in 76, but they only sent three wrestlers and they put me as number five. So in Australia in the 1970s and the 1980s, did you participate in Anzac Day activities? See, what you've got to remember is when we come back from Vietnam, uh, because of all the publicity on the TV, the media, and then there was the My Lai Massacre, and a lot of people put us in the same boat as some of them Americans, you know, that massacred... Uh, so I, I didn't tell anybody that I was a Vietnam veteran. I actually went to a, an event. I got some free tickets and go to the, the, uh, the Bolshoi Ballet, the Russian Bolshoi Ballet, and uh, I actually had my blazer on from the Munich Olympics. And then, uh, you know, I had a lapel, and yeah. I had a return serviceman badge there. And at that time, the Russians were in Afghanistan and you had all these bloody protesters at the front of the movies. And when they saw me return servicemen badge, they were having a go at me uh, for, for supporting the, the bloody ball- ballet, going to see them. And they were only performers and, uh, uh, you know, it's politics. And, mm. and that, uh, they kind of... They didn't see the that I would represent as Australia as an athlete. They just saw my uh, uh, return serviceman and they they knew that I was a Vietnam veteran. And uh, in Vietnam, I got called up for national service and it was part of, part of my service to go there. You know, I mm. volunteered and um, there's a lot of things that people try to put on to you. But, you know, now... I'm very proud of what I, uh, that I went to Vietnam, but back in them days, after Vietnam, you go to the ourselves and, and it was like uh, a lot of World War Two veterans and Korean veterans, they used to say that we weren't actually in a war, yeah. war if you know what I mean. You yeah. know, but, but that's, that's, cha- but, that's changed now, thankfully. Well, it has, and, and 
and most of the people run in the RSLs now are Vietnam veterans. You know? yeah. So you joined the Army Reserve SAS in 1978 and you were in it for six years and you won Commando of the Year in 1981. How proud did that make you? When I first got called up for national service, I thought, because of my fitness, I wanted to go to SAS, but I thought, you know, they're all hardcore professionals. And, uh, and leaving school at 14, I, uh, I was a little bit uh, backward, and I thought I weren't professional enough. So it was just a challenge for me, uh, and the disappointment of uh, not doing the physical training instructor's course, because I'm pretty sure that... Uh, uh, the OC of one commando company probably read my records and saw that I dropped out as a PDI. And, but then three years later, I became commando of the year. And the commando of the year was actually voted by the harder staff who were the SAS uh, professional staff, uh, the trainers, you know. And they're the people who, who chose who was the best officer and, and who was the best NCO, and that was the best NCO. So after retiring from the military, uh, you worked as a driver, and eventually you started to manifest PTSD symptoms. What were they, and, and how did you cope? Leading up to uh, 2000, my wife, she got cervical cancer, and in 2001, my mum died, and that kind of... Uh, over the years, things were just building up and uh, with a PTSD and I ended up in St John of God and uh, I was out there for four weeks and the first time they put me on an antidepressant was one tablet and uh, I've come home and and after a week, I couldn't I couldn't go back to work and I slept most of the day yeah, and there's be, no way I could drive. That can be quite... So after, they can be quite yeah, stupefying, couple, can't they? Yeah. So after a couple of weeks, uh, I rang the psychiatrist and he, he said, just take half a tablet. I ended up being on two tablets because I ended up, I couldn't handle things and I had to go back to St John of God. So it kind of, kind of went downhill. And um, How long did it take you to recover from your breakdown? Well, that happened in 2001. Now, in 2003... Uh, I used to go to the men's shed out at um, uh, the Aboriginal Medical Centre at Mount Druitt and uh, they had a magistrate uh, from the courthouse come to one of our uh, meetings and they were looking for people. They were going to start this thing called circle sentencing. Uh, it was to do with the justice group and the Mount Druitt courthouse. Anyway, I got involved and uh, then within 12 months I became uh, secretary of the uh, uh, the justice group. And then I've been involved with doing circumstances with Mount Druid and Blacktown Courts since 2003 until when I ended up in hospital. When were you diagnosed with cancer and uh, what was that fight like? Well, in October 2018, uh, that's when they discovered... Uh, well, I couldn't breathe properly, so I ended up... Well, I had to have an X-ray and they said, oh, you've got fluid on the lung. I had to get, go and get a CAT scan and they said, oh, you've got a sarcoma in your left lung. And then they said it was... Uh, uh, they were going to give me radiation to try and shrink it and then operate. 
But at Blacktown Hospital, they, uh, the doctor said he couldn't do it. And they sent me off to palliative support. Basically, they said, sorry, John, we can't do anything for you. It's terminal. And how did that make you feel? Did that make you want to fight? Well, it did. You know, I wasn't satisfied with what they, you know. And we actually went to uh, another doctor. Uh, he said, because they gave me radiation, he didn't want to operate. But then I found out that he wasn't capable of doing the job. He, he said, John, go and enjoy life. So me and Yvonne, we booked a trip to Vietnam. And then um, my good friend, who's a psychiatrist, the doctor, she wasn't happy and uh, we went to see him on the Tuesday and on the Wednesday she she rang uh, Chris O'Brien Lighthouse and um, she got me in there and she got me a visit on Friday so I took a little paperwork in there and then we uh, saw an oncologist there and then they actually uh, had a big conference and they put it to all the doctors. Can somebody operate on this man? He's got a, his left lung's got to come out, or the sarcoma's got to come out. Professor Tristan Yan put his hand up, and uh, the rest is all history. Uh, so how big, only, how big was the sarcoma? Uh, it was 25 centimetres long, and it weighed four kilos. God, so that, they took out your entire left lung? Yeah. And have they? How are you now? Are you now cancer free? I'm cancer free. Uh, Congratulations. I had after, and eventually, uh, every three months for a couple of months, I, uh, for a couple of visits, I had every three months, and then we're down to six months, and now it'll be twelve months. So. So you see. Uh, all the pet scans are cancer free. Good on you, mate. So you're 70 years old now. You've got another 30 or 40 years left in you. What's the... I'm waiting for that letter off the Queen, but I don't think she'd be around. What's the secret to uh, keeping on fighting? I mean, you've you fought your way out of poverty as a kid. You fought for Australia on the wrestling mat twice at the Olympics. You fought for your country in Vietnam. You fought PTSD and you fought lung cancer. What's the secret to being a fighter like Killer Kinsella? <laughs> well, a lot of people often say that I'm, a, I'm tough. Uh, at that time, when I got diagnosed and then I was told uh, virtually to go and see the uh, palliative support people, uh, if I were to crack up and start crying, you know, uh, uh, I know everyone... She used to cry when I wasn't around, and I thought if I crack up, everybody's gonna think that that's the end of me. But uh, that's what Professor Tristan Yan said. He said, John, he said you were tough, and that's how you got through the operation. And uh, yeah, I think you're tough, and that's how you've got through through life. But doing it with a laugh. Now, John, what does Anzac Day mean to you? Well, to me, it's a bit sad, actually, the last 10 years because I've lost a hell of a lot of mates. They've all died of cancer, and, and it didn't hit me until I got cancer myself. But uh, uh, let me emphasise that uh, the defoliants they used in Vietnam, the Agent Orange, is definitely what caused the cancer in, in the Vietnam veterans. And 
it's not only the Australians, but the Americans, they're all having the same problems. And, and all the cancers, it's all different. Uh, one of my mates, he had a brain tumour and, and another one, he, he had pancreatic cancer and uh, it, it just goes on. I had a sarcoma in the left lung and, and I actually had a mate come on hand that day and he was standing next to me and I didn't even recognise him because the amount of weight that he'd lost. And then two months after that, he died. And uh, these are the sort of things that hit home. You know, at the time, because you're healthy and you're still, still alive, uh, I've just had a mate, uh, he's actually got, uh, he's got something in his lung now. He's just had his liver operated on. And now he's got something in the lung. And this is all due to uh, the cancers that we uh, we got from Vietnam. And, uh, yeah, we're so not dying of old age where it's cancer-related problems. So that's the legacy of Vietnam for you? Yeah, but we're still proud to wear our medals and, and march on the day. I've, I've actually got the, uh, the last post and uh, I'm going to put it on a little loud, uh, a little... Uh, recorder and I'm going to get in the backyard and put my medals on and uh, have, have my own little parade out the back there. Good I'll on. get the daughter to tape it and put it on <laughs> Good on you, mate. All right, John, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much and uh, all the best for Anzac Day and for the next uh, 30, 40, 50 years of your life, mate. <laughs> uh, thanks, Michael. You've been listening to a special bonus episode of Forgotten Australia. The Sydney's Red Year series will conclude after the weekend. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review at iTunes because it helps other people find the podcast. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening and take care of yourself. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.